We can turn back to the passage we read there from Ephesians chapter 2. And I'd like us to think about verses 1 to 7 so we can uh, reread them. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Um, so far in this uh, letter, we could say that um, Paul has given different descriptions of uh, who Christians are. For example, in um, verse 1 of chapter 1, he says they are saints. And a saint it's just someone who's separated to God. The word saint doesn't really refer to your inner life. It just refers to who you are, what God has made you, a saint. Um, the way to become a saint is not to be saintly. I mean, being saintly follows on from being a saint. But it's not the way to become a saint. The way someone becomes a saint is by believing in Jesus. And at the moment they believe in Jesus, they become a saint. And they never become a better saint, although that kind of language is used. But they never become better as far as being a saint is concerned, a saint is just someone that's separated to God. They belong to God. They are his. He has marked them out as his. And they can never be unsainted. That's just who they are. And it doesn't affect their status, so it does affect the enjoyment of it, but it doesn't affect their status if they are not as saintly as they should be. And we might find that hard to grasp, but at the moment we're converted, we are justified. That status never changes. We become children of God. That status never changes. And we become saints. And that status never changes. 
But even as children of God, we can discover more of what being involved in the family means. So as being saints, we can discover more of what being separated to God means. But anyway, Paul has described them as saints in verse 1, chapter 1. And then in his long sentence in verses 3 to 14 of chapter 1, he has basically described them as sons of God. And if we want to know what it means to be a son of God, then a good passage to read is verses 3 to 14, because it's all about the inheritance. And he's also said about them in his prayer in verses 15 to 23 of chapter 1. He has said that as far as all of them are concerned, the power that is at work in each of them is the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. I mean, that's extraordinary. I mean, if we were to, um, just to look at each other from that perspective and just say to ourselves, about one another, that individual at this moment has the power that raised Jesus from the dead working in their lives. And that's extraordinary, isn't it? But thinking that way would give us a different perspective on one another, wouldn't it? Within the hearts of each of God's people, this power, and of course the, the power is the Holy Spirit, because it was by the Holy Spirit that Jesus was raised from the dead. And that astonishing power, the highest resurrection and the subsequent exaltation and glorification of Jesus that's the level of power that's at work within us. And that's quite extraordinary. And I wonder if Paul said that uh, to prepare his readers for what he's going to say about them in the verses we're going to look at. Because he, as it were, looks at them from a different perspective. And of course it is useful to look at salvation from all its angles. And because it's so big a topic that there's a whole range of pictures in the Bible that describe it. Just mentioned some of them already. Justification. Clothed in the righteousness of Christ. That's a great picture of salvation. Adopted and given the become joint heirs with Jesus, having the same inheritance. I mean, that's an amazing picture of salvation. And I suppose the question that does come to mind with regard to that is 
What were we saved from? Because Paul goes on to tell us here in verses 1 to 7. I don't know very much about art because like most classes I attended in school, I didn't want to be there. But um, looking back, I wish I had paid some attention to the art classes. Because I can go around an art gallery and not notice very much. But I do understand that if an artist wants to highlight the foreground, he creates a dark background. And the point of the dark background is to cause the foreground to shine brighter. And Paul does that here, doesn't he? He's like a master artist. And he wants us, or his readers, he wants them to see the brightness of salvation. And he decides, or is guided, to kind of elevate the brightness of salvation by describing in detail the darkness of our predicament. So I just want us to think about that tonight. And what is our predicament? Well, he tells us in verses 1, 2, 3, spiritual death. A very active state. So when he talks about death, he's not referring to inactivity. Spiritual death is something in which people do things. And we should remember that when we read Genesis and chapter uh, 2 or 3, where God says to Adam and Eve, in the day that you eat it, you'll die. He's not talking initially about physical death. That's another consequence, but the immediate consequence was spiritual death. And Paul goes on to describe that here in verses 1 to 3. And then he, verses 4 to 6, he does what we could call, he pictures as an artist in the foreground God's saving deliverance. What does it mean to be saved? Well, Paul tells us in verses 4 to 6. And then in verse 7, why are we saved? Why has God done it? I mean, what is God's reason? The big plan. But it's there in verse 7. That in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable, immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. You know, for God's people, the entire future 
is going to be experiencing the kindness of God. All the way. Throughout his endless, endlessness, constant kindness. That's the future. But anyway, in order to appreciate that, Paul says, we have to know just what we were rescued from. And there in verses 1 to 3, he mentions four things. Four things that marked all of us. And what are they? Well, we're sinners. And secondly, we were being led along by the creature that he calls the prince of the power of the air. And in doing that, it brought about a situation where all of us had shared aims. We were just doing certain things, and we'll think about that. And at the same time, we had a terrible status because we were children of wrath. And I think we forget that as Christians. That for every second before our conversion, we were under the wrath of God. And that's very solemn, isn't it? We can try and um, say, well, God was going to save us anyway. Which is true. But that's a kinder way of ignoring just what God felt about us. Or how God regarded us. Children of wrath. So we were sinners. And Paul, as he often does, he describes our sinful state by two simple words. Simple to understand, but awful in action. And these uh, two words are trespasses and sins. Or as we could put them in the old language, sins of commission, and sins of omission. Trespasses. Well, we know what a trespass is. If we ever climb a fence into a field where it says no trespassing, it means just to um, blatantly decide to disobey God's requirements. It's to go beyond is to say to God, you can't tell me not to do this. Sins, on the other hand, well, they fall short. God has a standard. And it doesn't really matter in a sense whether we, if we imagine God's standard is like a ladder with 12 steps, it doesn't actually matter if we manage to get up, to, we don't get this far actually, but it doesn't actually matter if we manage to get up to step two or to step 11. 
we're all falling short. The sad fact is we don't even get to step number one. But we are sinners. So that's a terrible state, isn't it? What an awful state to be in. Unable to do anything to please God because we never get to step number one. And at the same time, we're jumping over the fences to trespass against God. So that's where we were. How, what brings all this about? Why are people so eager to sin? I mean, Paul's description here covers everybody. Christians before they're converted and everybody else. Why? What's the power that's causing this? And Paul tells us what the power is. Following the prince of the power of the air. Of course, that's a a word about the devil. And this description, the power of the air, seems to me to tell us three things. It tells us he's got some kind of authority because he's a prince. It tells us that he's got some kind of realm because... It's called the air, whatever that means. And he's got a certain degree of ability. He's got power. I think the reference to the air just means the invisible world. In this invisible world, devil's active active constantly and what's he wanting to do what's he aiming at well he's aiming to produce what's described in the next section the spirit next sentence sorry the spirit but the word spirit there doesn't refer to the devil It refers to the attitude or the outlook he produces. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. This way of doing things is everywhere. And the devil brings it about by tempting by guiding, by suggesting, by influencing. And he does this all the time. He doesn't really care what people choose to do as long as they don't choose the right thing. His aim is to get them constantly making the wrong choice. And he does it. We're told there that 
He's working in the hearts of people. And the course of this world, or it could be translated, the way of this age. The way of our age is very different from the way of previous generations. And we're kind of prone sometimes, aren't we, to imagine that previous generations somehow were better. But all of them, every generation, is under the prince of the power of the air. And previous generations might have been more religious. But that's a very effective tool for him to use as well. As long as people don't do the right thing. So then we may ask, well, why don't they do the right thing? Why don't they just ignore him? And the answer to that, Paul says, is what he calls the flesh. The passions of our flesh. As we can see from verse uh, 3, the flesh includes the body and the mind. Everything about us. And he says that our physical responses and our mental responses are all passions. And in Paul's time, the word passion pointed to something that was evil. And it expresses the energy, the degree of strength that someone does in order to do what they want. So there we are. That's what we were like before conversion. Spiritually dead. But doing something every moment. Following the, the way the devil happened to be working at that particular time. And our personal response our fleshly response was to enthusiastically go along with it. And that's a very dark situation. We're not to imagine that the devil does that to each of us personally. He can only be in one place at one time. But He's got a whole host of agents that just go along with that. And we might say to ourselves, could it get any worse? And the answer is yes. Because not only were we sinning with our trespasses and our sins, and not only were we being 
blinded by the God of this world. And not only was our sinful tendencies showing themselves in whatever way it suited ourselves, but we were children of wrath, even as others. Of course, Isaiah 12 tells us that, doesn't it? When it's talking about God's salvation, and it says, though you are angry with me, your anger has turned away. And it is something fearful, isn't it? Just to think that God was angry. That's a dark background. And I think we've got to keep these four features in mind all the time. Our sinfulness, the devil's activity, our bias towards sin, and the fact that we were children of wrath. Somebody once said that quite often the most important word in a Bible passage is the word but. And here in verse 4, there's a very important usage of the word but. And as Paul describes our, the saving deliverance that he's got in mind, he says, But God, being rich in mercy for the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, before he goes on to speak about what God did, he tells us who God is. And of course, that's a very important order, isn't it? Because that tells us why God did something. And he points out to us that um, God's character, it's important to know God's character as well as knowing God's actions. Because character reveals motive. And God's character here is described in two ways. His mercy. Why could we be forgiven? Because God is merciful. Why were we forgiven? Because he loved us. And his mercy and his love go together. His, Paul could be describing, when he refers to mercy, he could be describing God's amount of mercy because he's rich in mercy. Or he could be describing the wide variety of ways by which God shows mercy. Because after all, every person who's ever been converted that was a different example of God's mercy. So God is rich in mercy. It's um, impossible to say how wealthy God is. What he's rich in. And it's good for us that he's rich in mercy. 
At the same time, he has loved us. And that's why God does anything, because he loves us. So Paul gives us that very brief description of God's character and then goes on to say that God has done three things. It's intriguing that he, as far as the dark side is concerned, he mentions three things, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And when he comes to talk about the details of God's salvation, he mentions three things. Number one, he made us alive with Christ. Number two, we are raised with Christ. And number three, we are seated with Christ. And when he's talking about these things, of course, he's talking about united, union, united to Jesus. And the first one, being made alive together with Christ, well, that happens when we're converted. That's regeneration. We're made spiritually alive. The Holy Spirit enlightens us. He enlightens our mind, and he renews us, and we are given new life, made alive. Those who are dead in trespasses and sins are now alive with Christ. They were dead in trespasses and sins and doing what the devil wanted. Now they're alive with Christ. And at the same time, because these three things happen at the same time, they are raised up with him. That doesn't refer to his resurrection. That refers to his ascension. He is raised up to the highest place and seated at God's right hand. And of course, as we sang there from Psalm 21, that is where Jesus is, highly exalted. And we might say to ourselves, is there anybody with him? And the astonishing answer that Paul gives here is, yeah, every Christian is with him. Because all of them have been raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places. Which doesn't refer to heaven, of course. It refers to the invisible world. And there we are, made alive with Christ. And people have looked at these um, pictures of being raised with him to the heights and seated with him that's on a throne power so these all these people who have been dead in their sins they are born again and they are given a new status we might say they've been raised up with him, sons of God, joined heirs with Christ. And in that wonderful role, they are seated with him, given power. Power over what? 
power over the dark kingdom. The kingdom that he was dealing with and that opposed him, it's going to oppose us. But we've been given a certain position, one that is incredible. And Paul later on goes on to talk about that when he talks in Ephesians chapter 6 about the spiritual armor we have to wear to fight against the powers of darkness. But we fight the battle from a position of authority. It's amazing, isn't it? Salvation. We are, some or other, linked to Christ. We are raised, we are made alive with him, and we are raised with him, and we are seated with him. And I'm sure Paul was saying, maybe he was saying uh, to his friends in Rome as he was dictating this letter, I hope the readers get the point. That they are designed by God to live in a spiritual world. And as we think of the, these um, three activities, well, what comes to mind? As you and I look at one another and we say to one another, you are raised with Christ. And you are made alive with Christ, sorry. You are raised with Christ. And you're seated with Christ. What thoughts should go through our minds as we look at that, as we say that to one another? Well, surely there's uh, three things. There's unity. Which Christian doesn't have these three places? All of them have it. They're alive with Christ. They are raised with Christ. And they are seated with Christ. So there's a real incentive to Christian harmony here. A second thing that it tells us is that we're always near to Jesus. Doesn't it? If we're made alive with Christ, and we are raised with Christ, and we are seated with Christ, then we're near to him, aren't we? And of course, that's the case. How far away is Jesus from us? I mean, that's a reasonable question. How far away is he? How, what's the distance between Christ and his people if they're united to each other? The Holy Spirit brings about the union. Constant. How far away is Jesus? Don't measure it in inches and feet. 
It's a spiritual reality. If we believe in Jesus, we're in Christ. The Holy Spirit, he sent from heaven to live in the hearts of his people, and he brings Christ with him. So there's an incentive to recognizing the unity, and there's an incentive to recognize the nearness of Jesus. And at the same time, this illustrations of being made alive and being raised up with Jesus and seated with Jesus, this is not pointing out that in this life we have foretastes of the world to come. Because that is the life of the world to come, isn't it? To be alive with Christ and to be exalted with Christ and to be seated with him forever. So that's the bright foreground. And it's quite extraordinary to compare it with the dark background that there we were with these three awful situations. The world, the flesh, and the devil just directing our lives. And here we are now, and these three wonderful things made alive with Christ, raised with Christ, and seated with Christ, governing our lives as Christians. And Paul is saying to us, look at the painting. See what God has done. Salvation. Well, what is salvation? It's not just salvation from something. It's salvation to something. We're saved from sin and all its consequences, but we're saved to living for God. And that's where we are today. But then Paul goes on to talk about what we could call our satisfying destiny. Why are Christians taken from the dark state of sin and brought into the brightness of God's mercy? Well, Paul tells us why. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God's got a plan. A plan that he is determined to keep. And that plan is to spend eternity showing to his people that he is a kind God. What does he mean by 
the coming ages. Well, you might think that's a surprising question to ask because surely it's obvious. But there have been different views of it. Some people imagine that the coming ages, or some people suggest, I should say, that the coming ages are the period between when Paul lived and the second coming of Jesus. So someone like Calvin says that what Paul has in mind here is the conversion of the Gentiles. That in the coming ages, as we look down the period of history of time, God is going to do throughout the world what he has done for Paul and his friends. And it takes a brave man to, or a woman to disagree with Calvin. But people have. So others say what is meant by the coming ages is, does include the period between Paul and the second coming of Jesus, but also includes the period after the second coming of Jesus. Because there's more than one age, isn't there? If it was just until the coming of Jesus, it would be the coming age. But it's the coming ages. And many people accept that, that in the period before Jesus comes, great things are going to happen, and then after he comes, well, great things are going to happen. And the third view is that by the coming ages, Paul means the period after the second coming of Christ. And personally, I suspect that is what he means, because Paul says that it's going to affect him and his readers. And he's not going to be around for the coming ages before Jesus comes back. And nobody that was with him back then has been around for almost 2,000 years. So the coming ages looks to me to refer to the endless future that is waiting for God's people. And in this future state of glory, What are we going to be given in God's kindness? Well, Paul tells us we're going to be given or shown. I mean, this is, I mean, it's it's an intriguing picture. Because he's saying that God the Father, because that's what he's speaking about in verse 7, God the Father will show the immeasurable riches of his grace. It's like a rich man taking us round his estate and saying to us, if it was possible, I have this for you, and I have this for you, and I have this for you, whatever it is. 
And the Heavenly Father is going to glorify his people. They're going to be conformed to the image of Christ. They're going to enter into his love. They're going to be given the inheritance. And as it all unfolds for them, the Heavenly Father is going to show it to them. I mean, isn't that amazing? I mean, we show something to somebody, we point to it, don't we? So the Heavenly Father, he's not just going to do this on day one. It's in the coming ages. It's going to happen on day one, and it's going to happen on day a million and one. It's just going to keep on happening. The gracious God of heaven, ensuring that all of his people understand and appreciate and enjoy the fullness of his inheritance. It's an amazing purpose that God has. I mean, his riches, Paul says, are immeasurable. This may be a daft illustration, but it's the best I can come up with. But <clears throat> we could imagine the wealth, the world's richest man saying, give me all my money in 10 pound notes so I can count as many notes as I've got. And he sits down there and counts out his 10 pound notes and one day passes and a week passes and maybe a month passes as he counts up what he's got because some people in this world have billions. But the thing about all of them is it can be measured. And eventually you'll have to sit down and say, well, I've counted them all. But God's riches, they're immeasurable. No one can say how much is there. And of course that tells us, I mean, some people think that the phrase, the coming ages, points to the fact, or points to the possibility, I should say, that eternity itself is divided into ages. An age for this, and an age for that, and an age for something else. And it means, if we take that illustration, that those who are when they're in the first age, because it's all immeasurable, they have no idea what's in the second age. And of course, there's millions of ages. Just keeping on going forever and ever. Astonishing. One, that's what God is going to do. It's going to take eternity to reveal it all. I read this thing that someone said about it, and he sort of says it far better than me, but he said this. The eternal God has an eternal kindness for his children. The exceeding riches of his grace are not to be realized all at once by those who are its objects. 
knowledge and enjoyment is this eternal world. Knowledge and enjoyment will grow on with life in an interminable progression. They will witness the unbroken peace and blessedness of the new heavens and new earth. So as we close, I mean, how do we react to that? I mean, when we read God's word, God speaks to us. And he's saying to us, isn't he, my plan for you, if you are my people, is that in the coming ages, God the Father says, I might show the immeasurable riches of my grace and kindness toward you in Christ Jesus. Some people suggest that uh, in Christ Jesus at the end should actually be translated as through Christ Jesus. That Jesus will be the administrator, we might say, of all the treasures of heaven. And he will just, by himself, give, share his inheritance and give to them out of the limitless fullness that's there. And it's good to look ahead, isn't it? And just say to ourselves, this is a serious question. What are we going to be experiencing a thousand years from now? Are we going to be experiencing heaven? the life of heaven. What God has got in mind. Or are we not going to be there? Just carry on. Being in the world of sin. And ending up discovering what God's wrath is all about. We have to surely come to all this with awe. Which of us deserves it? No one. But we've also got, as I mentioned earlier, and with this I'll stop, but we've also got to remember it's not just salvation from something. It's not just salvation from our sins. It's salvation to something. Salvation to a state where God reveals his grace and glory forever. So shall we pray.